coming uh, to worship with us today. I get the privilege of opening God's word with you. Uh, today is Mother's Day, so I want to say happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are here. And one of our church members, Richard Benjamin, wrote this uh, poem about some times in his life when his mom made an impact. And I just, I, I wanted to share it with you. I thought it was really good. It's entitled, My Mother's Prayers. When I found myself crying with thoughts about dying, what saved me were my mother's prayers. When I was hit by a drunk driver and all my wounds were minor, what saved me were my mother's prayers. When the bombs and shells were flying and all around good men were dying, what saved me were my mother's prayers. When the doctor said, we thought you had cancer, but now we see that nothing's the matter, what saved me were my mother's prayers. When the pilot said that we are crashing and everything around was burning and smashing, what saved me were my mother's prayers. And all those times my mom got no rest because she knew that I was close to death. What saved me were my mother's prayers. Moms pray for us and thank you moms for praying for your children. Uh, let me pray for you now. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have blessed us with moms and many of us have moms that prayed for us and our moms were the greatest and most consistent prayer warriors in our lives and so lord i i pray that now you would return that blessing to them that you would strengthen them increase uh, your grace in their lives bless them through your holy spirit's presence with them may your face shine upon them for those that have lost a mom they loved dearly we pray your comfort would be with them for those who would love to be moms but can't for some reason we ask that you would uh, reassure them of your love and i pray your blessing would be on us together as we worship you today in jesus name amen so uh, we have a lot of ground to cover in God's word, so I'm going to skip the fluffy introduction to the message. We're just going to dive right into scripture, grab your Bible, find Matthew chapter 5, or continue in our Sermon on the Mount. While you're finding that, we do have a couple of announcements. Um, today's Mother's Day, so we do an annual CareNet Pregnancy Center fundraiser. Um, from Mother's Day to Father's Day every year. There are baby bottles out there. Uh, pick up a baby bottle on your way out, grab it, put some change or some cash or a check in it. If you write a check, it's easiest if you write it to CareNet Pregnancy Center um, and not Lakeview Church. That just makes it cleaner and easier for us. We can just take them over and deliver them without any processing in the middle. So um, <clears throat> it's a great thing that you can do with your kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews uh, as we support a local ministry here in Madison. Um, also, on June 26th, I know it's a couple months, a uh, couple, well, a little ways out. want to get the date marked on your calendars. The youth group is taking a trip to Devil's Lake, and they're going to be doing, it's with Expeditions Unlimited. They're going to be doing all kinds of cool things like rock climbing with professionals <laughs> uh, who are safe and know how to do that, things, that thing with kids. Um, but if you know if your kids would like to go or you know kids that would like to go or you'd like to help in some way, talk to Jesse and Joe. That's coming up at the end of June, 26th and 27th. So uh, that'll be fun. That'll be a, a neat thing. Um, all right, let's jump right into the scripture. Uh, we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to move into what is the main body of the sermon. 
Uh, The last two weeks, we've looked at Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to dive into the main body of his teaching. Um, And verses 17 through 20 are his thesis statement. Remember when you were in school and you had to write a thesis statement? Uh, This is Jesus' thesis statement for the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read those verses in a moment. But um, he makes in verse 20 this startling and somewhat troubling statement. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a shocking and troubling statement because the scribes and the Pharisees were world famous for their righteousness. I mean, these were the righteous of the righteous. They were the, they were the special ops religious people, you know, uh, the, the Navy SEAL religious people, the, the Navy SEALs of righteousness. These guys had it down. The scribes and the Pharisees had gone through the Old Testament with a fine-tooth comb. They had calculated that the law had 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions, one for each day of the year, as the old saying goes, right? 248, do this, do this, do this. 365, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And they made it their life's passion to obey every single one of them to the letter. And for the most part, they did. I mean, they really did a pretty darn good job. Sorry, I said darn from the pulpit. They really did a pretty good job of obeying all of those commands and all of those laws. They were top notch. And so when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. My ears perk up and say, wait a minute. How then can I enter the kingdom of heaven? How can, what, what kind of righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And how can Christians today have that kind of righteousness? That's really the question I want us to hold as we enter into this next part of the Sermon on the Mount. What kind of righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? And how can we have it? Because that's a really important question because I want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. I know about you, but I want to be there. So, How do we do that? What does that look like? Uh, Let's read Jesus' thesis statement, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, notice he doesn't say whoever disobeys, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? How can we have a righteousness that exceeds that? What's he doing? Well, first of all, I want to point out two things that he's not doing. Jesus is not heaping on the condemnation. He's not just racking up more charges for a stronger guilty verdict, right? He he doesn't have to do that. We're already guilty. So he's not heaping on the condemnation, making us feel even more depraved, making us feel even more like dirt, 
No, that's not what he's doing. And, and one, of the, one of the really popular ways of reading uh, this part of the Sermon on the Mount is to say that uh, Jesus never intended us to try and follow these laws because we can't do it. It's impossible. Really, these laws are showing a, a, they're a diagnostic tool. He's not in this Sermon on the Mount inspiring our obedience. He is diagnosing our disobedience. That's what he's doing. We're not supposed to try to follow these because we can't. You can't live up to God's perfect standard and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he's showing you what, what that means. What he's doing is he's heaping on the condemnation so that you feel depraved and then come to Jesus and ask for mercy. Well, that's not exactly true what he's doing. He's not, that, that impossible ideal implies that we're not supposed to obey these commandments. They're just a diagnostic of our sin. However, that contradicts Jesus' own words. In verse 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in fact, he says, Not even an iota or a dot, not, not the smallest little mark of the pen, will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, Jesus has not yet ridden out from heaven on a white horse with a sword and defeated all the powers of evil and established his kingdom forever. He hasn't done that yet. So not everything is accomplished. So the law is not just to be tossed aside because, well, you can never obey it anyway, so just ignore it. Why bother? That's not what he's teaching. That's not what he's doing. He's not heaping on the condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Right? Uh, New Testament scholar Dr. Jonathan Pennington says, grace and virtue are friends, not enemies. Sometimes in our branch of Christianity, we think, if I actually try to obey the teachings of Jesus, then I am insulting God's grace, and I am robbing God of his glory, because I can never achieve it. So even my effort to achieve it is a, is a you know, I'm taking off my glove and slapping Jesus across the face and challenging him to a duel or something silly like that. But grace and virtue are not enemies. They're friends. And Jesus intended for us to actually live this way. This is supposed to be obeyed. The question is, how? How do we do that? By the way, uh, Dr. Pennington's book on the Sermon on the Mount is called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. It's probably the best commentary I've read on the Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty dense, but if you like reading in-depth biblical commentaries, I would highly recommend it. Um, It's very helpful in sort of understanding what Jesus is doing in this sermon. So um, anyway, he's not heaping on the condemnation. Another thing, Jesus is not upping the ante. This is another common way that these passages are read. He's not piling on even more rules to follow, right? Like, oh, you think adultery is bad? Well, I'll see your adultery and I'll raise you lust. Oh, you think murder is bad? Well, I'll see your murder and I'll raise you anger, right? He's not like piling on even more rules for us to follow if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. That, That contradicts what Jesus said just a few chapters later. Matthew chapter 11 Verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's not here piling on even more of a burden, even more rules and regulations and laws for us to follow. That's not what he's doing here. So what is he doing? When he says your righteousness has to exceed 
that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what does he mean? What is he saying? He is showing us the true intent of God's laws and commands. He's showing us, he's revealing to us, not just the letter of the law, but the purpose of the law. That's what he's doing. See, in verse 17, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That doesn't mean he's come to complete it. That means he's come to fulfill its purpose, to show us through his life the intent and purpose of the law and to teach us in his teachings like the Sermon on the Mount the intent and purpose of the law. He is revealing to us what God's law is accomplishing. Well, what is that? Again, Dr. Jonathan Pennington says, God sees and cares about something deeper than just the physical act of murder or adultery or divorce. God sees and cares about the heart, the inner person. See, God cares as much about who you are as he does about what you do. And the purpose of the law isn't just to change what you do, but it's to change who you are on the inside. It's to change your heart. Uh, We might say it like this. Kingdom righteousness is a righteousness is not a righteousness of behavior management, but of heart transformation. What kind of righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? A righteousness that is not merely external, about checking your boxes and following all the rules, but a righteousness that is internal, that changes who you are on the inside and transforms your heart. That kind of righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that kind of righteousness is available to everyone who follows Christ, who surrenders their life to him. We're going to see that as we go through the the message. This is his thesis statement. Kingdom righteousness is not a righteousness of behavior management, but of heart transformation. And then he goes through six examples showing this kind of righteousness at work in real life. Uh, And we're going to talk about three of the examples this week and three of the examples next week. Now, I want to point out before we dive in, these six examples are just six examples that Jesus picked. He could have picked a hundred different other examples. So when he talks about murder or adultery or divorce, he's not necessarily preaching a sermon about anger management or lust management or marriage. He's He's using them as illustrations of a bigger point, that kingdom righteousness is a righteousness of the heart. And then he's showing you in some real-life ways how that looks, what that looks, how that works in real life. Does God care about what we do? Absolutely, he does. But he also cares about who we are, particularly in areas like relationships, marriage, and, and some of these other things that he talks about. But it's really about heart transformation. Have you heard the saying, uh, you can put lipstick on a pig, but then what do you have? A pig with red lips, right? It's still a pig. That's what Jesus is saying. You can do all, you can put all the rules in place. You can check off all the boxes. You can follow all of the, all of God's laws and commands. But if your heart is not transformed, you're, it's just like a pig wearing lipstick, right? It's not changing who we are. And, And God's laws are so much deeper than that. The Apostle Paul picked up on this exact principle in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 2, verse 28, Paul wrote, For you are not a true Jew 
just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. It's not about obeying the letter of the law. It's about a change of heart. If we were going to sort of paraphrase what Paul was writing there for us today, we might say it like this. For you are not a true Christian just because you were born of Christian parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of confirmation. No, a true Christian is one whose heart is right with God. And true confirmation is not merely obeying the letter of the law. It is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. This is the the thesis. This is the point Jesus is making in these examples. So let's walk through the first three of his examples. The first one is murder. That comes in verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Show of hands, how many of you have committed murder in the past week? This is one time when you don't really want to see hands go up in church, right? (laughs) Jesus picks this example. If you have not committed murder in the past week, congratulations, you have achieved the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees with respect to this part of the law. Great job, all of us. But he says, no, no, that's not enough. It's got to go beyond that. What Jesus is not saying in this passage is that being angry with someone is the equivalent of murdering them. He's not saying, no, you, you failed to keep this command because you were angry with somebody, so therefore you're guilty of murder. Now, we all know it would actually be worse for you to go next door and shoot your neighbor than it would be just to call out, hey, dummy, why did you do that, right? It's clear that it would be worse to actually shoot him right? Everybody knows that. That's common sense. That's, Jesus is not equalizing all sin here. He's showing us a difference between the letter of the law and the heart of the law, right? The letter of the law, the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is don't murder or you'll be liable to judgment. Now, I can follow the letter of that law and still hate you. I can. It's true. I I can hate you without killing you, right? You can hate somebody else without killing them. But that's not the, that's not the, intention of the law. God did not want us to all walk around hating each other just as long as we don't shoot each other. That's not what he's trying to, that's not what he's establishing. That's not life in the kingdom. There's a greater righteousness, a deeper righteousness, a righteousness of the heart. The internal righteousness of the kingdom says, don't be an angry and hateful person. No, no, no. Don't be enslaved by that. Don't be so easily offended every time somebody says something you don't like. Don't walk around with hatred in your heart and murder in your mouth because your pride has been pricked and now you're offended 
right? That's not, that's getting at the heart. The, the heart is love your neighbor as yourself. And when conflict arises, and it will because we all have sin in our lives, so when conflict arises, be the first one to seek reconciliation. Even if you weren't the one that created the conflict, you step out, take the initiative, resolve it, apologize, extend forgiveness. That's what he's saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't murder them. You won't have to worry about, like, should I murder my neighbor today or not? Well, you won't have to ask that question in the morning. You won't have to have your buddy hold you accountable to not shoot your neighbor because you love your neighbor as yourself, right? The heart of the law, it changes who you are. Jesus is showing in this example the difference between following the letter of the law and fulfilling the purpose of the law. I have uh, four boys, and they're all about two years apart, and there is rarely on occasion some conflict in our house, maybe like three or four times an hour. Um, And so whenever our boys get into it, which is inevitable, uh, and there's yelling and going on every day, and then, you know, you go in and you say, what happened? Well, he took my Legos and lost a piece or whatever, and, and you say, okay, look at him and say you're sorry for taking his Legos. And what do they do? Sorry for taking your Legos. Did he obey the letter of the law? Yes, he did. Did he fulfill the purpose of the law? Absolutely not. There's a difference between saying sorry and being sorry, right? There's a difference between murdering your neighbor, hating your neighbor, and loving your neighbor. One's the letter of the law, one's the intent and the purpose behind the law. That's what Jesus is doing. He's using this to show a deeper level of righteousness. The next example that he gives is adultery. Verse 27, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members of of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, what is he saying here? Again, he is revealing the law's true purpose. He is not equalizing all sin. He's not saying if you've lusted after somebody, you're guilty of adultery. That's not what he's saying. It's, it, clearly, it's worse to actually commit adultery than it is to think about committing adultery, right? It's worse. So he's not equalizing all sin. What he's doing is pushing back on our tendency to focus on external behavior and to, find, to define godliness by appropriate behavior instead of having a right heart. That's what we tend to do. Are you, did, how are you doing? Well, I haven't done anything wrong. My heart's all in the wrong place, so I must be okay. That's not what he's saying. The Message Bible captures this uh, really well in the way they translate verses 27 and 28. You know the next com- commandment pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. That's what Jesus is teaching. Don't think just because you didn't actually do it that you don't have an issue. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. And by the way, lustful intent doesn't only apply to men. It can be men and women. And it doesn't only apply to sexual desire. Right? Oh, 
Look at him and how he treats his wife. He's such a better husband than mine. I wish he was my husband. Guilty, right? It's the same thing, different application, same point. About 1,700 years ago, St. Methodius of Olympus said, Jesus is not counting as clean someone who avoids only the act of adultery. He wants the heart to be clean as well. For it is not the fruit of adultery that he commands us to cast out, but its seed. Jesus is saying, don't compromise with sin. Don't allow the seeds of adultery to take root in your heart. Get rid of those seeds and you'll never have to worry about the fruit. But if you don't deal with the seeds of adultery, the lust that's in your heart, you'll get closer and closer and closer and closer and then you'll come right up to the line and if you wait to deal with the lust until you're right on that line of should I commit adultery or not, then you're, it's already, you're too far gone. If you start at the beginning and root out those weeds out and get rid of them and uproot them and get them out of your life, They'll never grow into the fruit of adultery. That's what he's saying. It's a deeper level of righteousness. The external righteousness is you can look, but you can't touch. And Jesus says, no, I want you to get rid of even the seeds that produce the fruit of the sin. And he says, in a rather bizarre way, you know, tear out your eye, cut off your hand. And he's not saying that literally. Don't go home and grab a spoon and gouge out your eye. Well, pastor told me to tear out my eye today in church. Right? He's, not being, he's using an extreme example to make a point. Don't compromise with sin, any sin. Don't compromise. Don't give it a foothold. Don't allow it to take root. If we were going to, uh, to rephrase this in our time, we might have had, Jesus, Jesus might have said, if your iPhone causes you to sin, smash the screen and throw it away. For it is better that you go through life with a dumb phone and a pure heart than a smartphone and a corrupted mind. Right? There is so much trash on this little device available to anybody that has it in their pocket. And Jesus says, if that's causing you to lust or to struggle, throw the freaking thing away. Sorry, I said freaking from the pulpit. <clears throat> it's, the letter, it's the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. Right. Throw it away. Get rid of it. He's being extreme here. Smash it. Did you know that, that the world existed just fine before there were iPhones? The world existed just fine before there were cell phones. And, and it didn't fall apart. You can live life without your smartphone. If it's causing you to sin, throw it away. My spouse is more important than my phone or my fantasy. Right? There's a difference between asking how close that I can get to the line without crossing it and asking how close I can get to God without exploding because he's so glorious. If, if this is the line of sin... This is God. I can't face both directions at the same time. So if I'm saying, well, how close can I get to that line without falling off, without crossing it? Where's my heart? God's at my back. My heart's not facing God. And Jesus says, look, I'm less concerned with you having absolute moral perfection. I'm more concerned that your heart is facing me. Because if my heart is facing Jesus, then that sin is behind me. And if I'm ever drawing closer to Christ until I'm about to explode from his glory, then I'm moving further and further away from that sin. That's the greater righteousness. That's the deeper righteousness. We don't always get it right 100% of the time. But if our heart is facing God, then our heart is in the right direction. That's the point. Uh, The third example that Jesus gives is probably the hardest one for us, divorce. Look at verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a really hard teaching. What does this mean? And let me say from the beginning, if you have gone through a divorce, there is grace for you. There is healing for you. There is mercy at the foot of the cross for you. Jesus is not casting out people who have gone through a divorce as the dregs of society. He's using an example from real life to highlight the point of a righteousness of the heart. And I really like the way uh, that the Message Bible translates these verses because it gets at what Jesus is saying It says, remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. There are a lot of things that are legal that are not right. And in some places in the world, doing what's right is not legal. And as kingdom people, as children of God, we don't live simply by what is legal. We live by what is right. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, whether it pays us back or not, whether it benefits us or not, whether it gets us the promotion or not. We do what's right because it's right, not because it's legal. Now, That's the principle that he's teaching there. What about the specific example that he used? What about divorce? What is he saying about divorce there? Before we get distracted into a theological argument about divorce and remarriage, remember that he's talking in this sermon about a righteousness of the heart. He's pointing us toward the condition of our hearts. And a few chapters later in Matthew 19, Jesus expounded on this saying about divorce. Matthew 19, 3, some Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, and look at this next sentence, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. God's intention for, for marriage was a man and a woman together for life. One man plus one woman for one lifetime equals the Bible's plan for marriage. And, and they said, well, how come Moses allowed us to divorce? And why, did, why was it? Because of the hardness of heart. Here's what Jesus is teaching about divorce. Hard-hearted people do not succeed in marriage. Marriage is hard work. When I do premarital counseling with people, I tell them, dating is the vacation, marriage is the job. It's not easy. 
your husband or your wife will sin against you. They will hurt you. They will let you down. And you will sin against them and hurt them and let them down because we're sinners. And if we're hard-hearted, if we're stubborn, if we refuse to repent, if we're not soft and tender toward each other, our marriage will not stand the test of time. God's intention was one man plus one woman for one lifetime. And sometimes we don't get it right. But when we don't, it's because of the hardness of our heart. That's what he's teaching there. And when we're in a relationship like that, even if it's legal, it doesn't make it right. That's, what it, that's the other principle that he's teaching in that passage. So he uses these three examples. He gives three more examples. We're going to look at those three next week. Uh, I want to wrap this up by asking the question, how do we grow in that kind of righteousness? If kingdom righteousness is a righteousness of heart transformation, not just behavior management, heart transformation, how are our hearts transformed? And the first thing that we need is a new heart and a new spirit. We cannot live up to this kind of righteousness on our own. We will fail. That's why Jesus came and gave his life on the cross. Because we had failed and we will fail. And he came and paid the penalty of that sin so that we could come and be reconciled to him and receive his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and then works that out into our lives over time. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 says, God is speaking here. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender responsive heart and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations we can't have a a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the pharisees unless we surrender our lives to christ admit and acknowledge that I can't achieve it on my own only god can transform my heart and then we receive the holy spirit who regenerates our hearts and gives us a new heart then we can allow him over time to lead us in this kind of life. So we need a new heart. We need a new spirit. Number two, we need the teaching and the example of others. In Matthew five nineteen, Jesus said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these and teaches others to do the same will be called least, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. We have to have the teaching of God's word and the example of other believers in the body of Christ to show us how this works, right? This is why we need intergenerational small group ministry. If it's all age and stage, then everybody is in the same place that I am. And I can't see how they interact with each other. But what I need, I need to see somebody who's been married for 56 years. And I need to watch how that husband talks to his wife. And then I say, oh, okay, this is how people who love Jesus and are married for 56 years talk to their wives. And then my brain registers that. And then I begin to transform how I talk to my wife. Why? Because I love Jesus and I want to be married for 56 years. Right? So it changes who we are. We need the teaching of God's word. We also need the example of God's people. And we have to be interspersed and intergenerational and mixed up to do that, to see people who are a few steps ahead on the path, right? We also, last thing is we need practice. We need practice. You, you, don't, you don't get in shape by sitting on the couch eating chips and watching football. You get in shape by going to the gym 
by hopping on a bike, by running out, going out and running a, a track or whatever, right? So you need practice. If, if you have an anger issue and God says, I'm going to work that issue out in your heart, I'm going to transform your heart, guess what he's going to do? He's going to send people that say dumb things so you get angry. <laughs> and then you have to, oh, okay, uh, I need to practice this and then I need to forgive and, and this is what he, and as you practice and as you go, you develop that. It works it out in your life. The Holy Spirit says, no, that was the wrong way. I'm going to show you the right way, and then I'm going to give you another person, and you can practice on them. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's what you do. So we, we need a new heart and a new spirit. We need to give our lives to Christ and receive his mercy. We need the teaching example of others, and we need practice. And if we have these things, then we will be growing in a righteousness that is actually greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, arguably the most righteous people who have ever lived in the history of the world. And ours will exceed theirs because it's a righteousness of the heart. Let me pray and then we'll sing and close our service. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that you taught these words. That This is a hard teaching. But you didn't leave us to muddle through it on our own. You came and made up the difference where we lack. You took all of our failure and all of our sin onto yourself and you nailed it to the cross. And no matter how many times we've failed, no matter what we've done, it's forgiven in Christ. And there's mercy and grace at the cross. So Lord, if there are people here this morning who have not given their lives to you, I pray that they would. We're not Christians because we've been baptized or confirmed or signed a doctrinal statement or repeated a a memorized answer to a question. We're Christians because the Holy Spirit has come and changed our hearts. And I pray that you would speak that truth into people's hearts today and that you would enable us, empower us through your Holy Spirit to actually be the kind of people that you've called us to be, to have a kingdom righteousness, to love one another, to serve one another, for your glory and the common good. In Jesus' name, amen.